You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 88 of In Country, the podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I am continuing on with my regular coverage of the series and the history of the Vietnam War with issue number 78 of The Nom. And I'm going to take a look at the rest of 1972, starting with October and ending with December. I'm also going to take a brief look at an article about the series that was featured in Marvel Age number 122, and we'll be starting a new Punisher story in Punisher War Journal number 52. Our song this time around is Papa Was a Rolling Stone, performed by The Temptations, which hit number one in the Billboard Hot 100 on the week of December 8, 1972. The song, which was originally written for and performed by the group called The Undisputed Truth, was the group's last number one hit and would also win them their second and final Grammy in a competitive category. Issue number 78 of The Nom has two stories, a main story and the latest chapter in the six-page backup Stateside series. It was released on January 26, 1993 with a March 1993 cover date and a price of $1.75. The cover by Mike Harris shows a man in U.S. Army fatigue setting fire to a pile of papers in a room full of files while a Vietnamese soldier watches from behind. The cover copy says, Burning Secrets. I should also mention that in the UPC box in the bottom left-hand corner has the POW MIA symbol, and I think that is the case for most of the rest of the series. It's a pretty solid cover with great use of shadow and color. In fact, Harris has been doing a very good job with the colors lately. The main story is called The Fall of Quang Tree, and our creative team is Don Lomax, writer, Wayne Van Zandt, artist, Phil Felix, letters and colors, Tim Tui, assistant editor, Don Daly, editor, and Tom DeFalco is your editor-in-chief. We open two weeks after the end of last issue. Ed Marks, according to our caption boxes, has spent the last 12 days on the aircraft carrier Coral Sea on Yankee Station, the United States Navy's staging area for the 7th Fleet off the Vietnamese coast. Ed has been interviewing pilots, crew, and officers chronicling life on the aircraft carrier and the constant missions against the North as part of what President Nixon has termed Operation Linebacker. When he arrived two weeks ago, Ed Marks welcomed the clean, ordered life of this giant floating city, which seems so removed from the war. By May 1st, 1972, Ed Marks 
is bored. Andy's a slob, something that's been noticed by Ensign Frank, who interrupts his sleep and tells him that his particular behavior is not what the Navy expects, and even his bunkmate, Pigeon, is annoyed that he's not keeping his area, wait for it, ship shape. Ed says that while he's been grateful for the interviews the pilots have given him, he's been very bored and definitely has cabin fever. Frank then says that he can take he can help with that, and we cut to a helicopter over Quang Tree where the NVA tanks are attacking the city and civilians are dying by the hundreds while thousands more are clogging the highway south toward Wei as they try to escape the army. The helicopter's mission is to find three U.S. soldiers and get them out of there alive. They land on the city street and immediately find two of the three soldiers. They ask where the third guy is and one of them tells Ed and the helicopter pilot that he's back in a building burning records. Ed volunteers to find him and talk to him and almost gets killed as a result when he sneaks up on the guy and the guy fires on him. Ed tells him that he's there to get him out of Quang Tree, and the soldier says that the records have to be destroyed because they contain very sensitive information, and that would compromise a number of friendlies, as he puts it. Ed volunteers to help him and pours gasoline all over the room, and they light a grenade and run. Unfortunately, the helicopter thinks that both of them have been killed in the explosion, so they take off. Ed and the sergeant have taken cover in a bunker, and they think that the chopper, th- the people in the chopper think that they were possibly killed, or in the very least, um, Charlie thinks they're dead. The sergeant introduces himself as Lester Briscoe, his nickname Bulldog, and he explains that the offensive had started on April 27th with tanks and artillery, and it hasn't stopped. He tells Ed that the Arvin troops working with him did not do so well, and they have more or less been overrun. Then he suggests that they leave the bunker while they still can and get into an APC that he knows is down the road. That APC is still there, and Ed gets into the driver's seat while Bulldog takes his place behind the gun mounted to the roof of the truck. They fight their way through the city and eventually reach Highway 1, which is overrun with refugees. They steal gas from a number of abandoned vehicles. When Ed suggests they help some of the refugees giving them a ride, Bulldog reminds them they could be dangerous and it result in a number of civilians getting killed. No sooner does he says this than the NVA begins shooting at Highway 1, killing several civilians. The people part enough for the APC to get a clear path, and Ed, shocked and upset by the murder of these civilians, turns the APC toward the NVA soldiers. Bulldog fires on the NVA, and they flee. The ones who are left are beaten down by the civilians who survived. Ed suggests that they take as many wounded as they can carry and head south. Bulldog agrees, and they keep driving. Later, Ed arrives back on the coral sea and collapses in his bed while someone is cleaning the room. Frustrated, the guy says, Why try? And stops cleaning. I know I've more or less said this already, but I do enjoy this approach of Ed Marks traveling around the country and interacting with different types of people because it allows us to have a variety of stories while still having at least one constant factor or viewpoint. This time around, I will say that the cover is a little misleading because the phrase burning secret suggests this might be a military intelligence scenario that's ultimately shady, and Ed is going to catch this guy doing shady things. You know, the type of dirty scenario we've seen play out on television series or movies a thousand times before. But here, Lomax plays it straight. He is literally burning the files of people who are Americans and American allies so that they do not fall into enemy hands. The guy isn't shady and, in fact, works with Ed to get them both to safety. Bulldog even goes against the trope of the hard-nosed soldier who really doesn't care about the civilians or even has a racist attitude toward them. When Ed first suggests taking a few of the refugees onto the APC with them, his reply is very logical and practical. They would make themselves a target and therefore more civilians would get killed. 
Then, when Ed mounts the frontal assault in the NVA, he is at first like, what are you doing? But then he goes right along with it and takes them out. This is a good one-off character who, while not memorable, does his job solidly. He provides context for the action through the exposition he gives when he meets Ed, and he helps our protagonist out of a jam, and he shows us another side of the soldier's experience. The comedy beats are fun, too, and Ed is proving to be a bit of a slob on the aircraft carrier. Curious to see how this next couple of stories will go, especially since we're getting a three-issue Tet Offensive story next, and after that, there are only three issues left of the series overall. Wayne Van Zant's art is really good as usual. He does a very good job, especially in the scene with the NVA ambush, making it seem terrible without making the violence gratuitous. I also have to give some serious credit to Phil Felix, whose colors really serve the comic well. There are points where I really notice how he colors the sky to reflect the time of day or does not let the background detail get too washed away. It's been really great to see the art and coloring get to this point. I'm looking forward to the few issues that we have left. Now, the second story in this is called Haunted, and it's a stateside story. Our creative team is the same as the previous one. Don Lomax is on story with Mike Harris and Frank Percy on art. O'Higgins does the letters, Kaliz does the colors, and the editorial is the same. We pick up where we left off with Rob Little arriving at Sergeant Pocolo's apartment. He meets Dennis for the first time and shakes his hand. Sarge mentions that Rob worked with him after he helped get Top removed from his post. Rob then takes the opportunity to mention that he thinks he saw Top in D.C. the night his brother Eugene was gunned down. He recaps the events we learned about in issue number 76, and then Sarge says that he's not going to be the easiest person to find. Rob's disappointed, but then Sarge suggests going in the opposite direction than what Rob had considered. Instead of finding Top now, they should figure out where he went once he was kicked out of the NOM and move forward from there. Rob wonders if they know anyone who could help, and Sarge suggests reaching Ed Marks. They head over to the Associated Press office in New York, where they get brushed off and are about to walk out when Jan, the woman who had written a letter to Ed in an earlier story, this is the letter that Ed received last issue, stops them. She says that she can help and suggests they meet off-site. Later, at the guy's hotel room, Jan shows up with the information that they need to get a call in to Ed. We cut to the coral sea where Ed takes the call. After exchanging pleasantries with Sarge and Rob, he learns what's happened to Rob's brother. He writes down Top's real name, which is Julius Tarver, and promises to find out what happened to him after 1966. Then Jan asks to speak with him in private, and they talk. And after the conversation is over, Ed sits happily and says, I have a date. The end of this is cute, and just like some of the other chapters of Stateside, Don Lomax is mixing the serious aspects of the story with some lighthearted moments, and it's not overdoing it at all. I continue to enjoy this and continue to enjoy how much he is getting done in the six pages that he has to work with. Rob tells Sarge what happened to Eugene and how he thinks Top was involved, and suddenly we're in New York because we've, seen, we've all seen that they know Ed is a reporter. The different characters are converging here, which is going to get us to what I'm sure is going to be the climax of this entire thing. And while this continues to just be conversations between people and not much action, the familiar characters combine with the curiosity we have about what happened to them after the war, well, it's intriguing. I know this is a war comic and they kind of have a mandate to cover the action in the main story, but I would love to see an entire issue of just stateside stuff. The art 
continues to improve. Um, Percy's inks are a little lighter this time, but Harris has come into his own as a penciler since the first couple of stories on this title. And while I know this is a short review of the backup here, I also know this is a, another setup chapter for something else. So I'll definitely have more to say from there. So let's get to uh, the letter column and the ads. Incoming this month, Quinton D. Wortham's uh, captain of the U.S. Marine Corps from Los Angeles, California, writes that he is a 46-year-old African-American male who served in Vietnam in 1969 as a captain in the USMC. I was assigned to the 1st Battalion, 4th Marine Regiment, 3rd Marine Corps. We were located in Quang Tri Province up in I-Corps. I graduated from OCS in November 67 and basic school in 68. When my basic school class graduated, approximately 85% of us were headed to Vietnam to replace the junior company grade officers who were lost during the Tet Offensive of 1968. Within 45 days of graduation from our TBS, from TBS, our class had its first casualty. Lieutenant Ron Davidson was killed when his jeep ran over a landmine. I have been reading the NAM since the first issue in 1986. I have collected every issue. It is the first comic book that I have read on a regular basis since I stopped buying comics as a kid over 35 years ago. I read it because I find solace in the pages. What you write makes it easier for me to understand some of the things I saw happen when I was there. It does not make it easier for me to accept that men I know are now dying of cancer at 45 years old. These are men who were walking around in the jungle in 1966-68 to 68 when Agent Orange was being sprayed down on us from the air. I talked to one of my friends last week. When he was a company commander in the Vietnam, he won two silver stars, four bronze stars, five to six purple hearts, two Navy commendation medals, and a host of other decorations. This man is a genuine all-American hero, and he will be dead in a year. The doctors don't know what caused the cancer. I understand that Agent Orange is like that. I would like to see you write something in one of your upcoming issues about that part of the war. We all need to see it. The editors respond that... They don't have any plans for an Agent Orange issue, but the subject might possibly be explored in the Stateside series. Jeff Duncan of Rochester, Minnesota writes in about issue 75, and he talks which was about me live. So he says, I can remember as a kid my mom telling me the story. Although you define job as always of telling the story, I think there was one significant point omitted. In Vietnam, quite often, it was impossible to tell apart the South and the North Vietnamese. Also, many of the old women and children were carrying pistols and grenades and were not hesitant to use them on American soldiers. I am not condoning Lieutenant Kelly's actions that day, but under those circumstances, it's hard to say what anyone in the bush for a year would have done. I don't mention this to get on your case. I think you do a fine job, but I would like the teens who read this as the gospel account, which it almost is, to see the other side before they condemn the man. One last thing, my dad was a radio op, Morse code, enemy code breaking, and, and top security and all that stuff in Nam in the early years. He was out before or during 65. He tells stories of an enemy so weak that we could have won the war over there with a pea shooter if it wasn't for stupid politics. Would it be possible to do some pre-66 issues? Editors respond, we're not saying Callie was right or wrong, still morally what he did was questionable. We tried to be fair to all involved. However, hopefully we will never have the experience of being in this situation. Edgar Jackson writes in to say that um, he'd been wanting to write a letter for a long time. He knows the NOM is a more serious book than the average Marvel production, and the average fan letter is a tad more jargon-filled, but I hope you don't mind a good old-fashioned fan letter. 
And they say that don't mind Edgar. We, in fact, we want to hear from all our avid fans who haven't written in and hear again from those who have. While we enjoy what the NOM receives letters from vets and personally and personnel currently affiliated with the military, part of our pride rests in the various types of readers we have. From the young to the old, we want to hear from all of our readers. And um, then Travis Cole closes us out that um, he has quite an interest of the, for the uh, in the special ops like the Green Berets. And uh, he thought they're doing a great job, and they th- say that they are. Uh, they thank him for the kind words, and they ask him to pass it on. And then we get the next issue box from Tim Tui that says that next issue starts the three-part Ted Offensive storyline with a triptych cover by Michael Golden. Uh, there are no nom notes this issue, so we'll go ahead and look at the ads. Inside cover is the poster for Army of Darkness with Bruce Campbell. There is the X-Men trading card, X-Men Series 2 trading card ad with this kid wearing Wayfarers, a t-shirt underneath a collared shirt. He's got his hands and his jeans all cool looking. He's got this kind of moosed up hair. It says, it's a good bet. It's a good bet the kid's favorite mutants ain't turtles. So it's this whole looking, it's very, very like 90s looking teenager gotta look cool things they never really figured out how to how to market to teenagers like tweens in the early 90s did they chuck rock ad that we saw in a previous issue is also in here for the super nintendo there's a couple of repeat ads in here so i don't have to a lot to cover um they're the pride of the x-men i believe this is the night of the sentinels the night of the sentinels um video series Marvel's X-Men animated X-Men series uh, that is available at Musicland, Sam Goody, and Suncoast. I think that might collect a few of the episodes of the animated series, which I think had just started appearing around this time. Mile High Comics is uh, having having a big sale, and they have comic collector starter packs. You can get 10 X-Men comics for $9.95. You can get 10 Marvel graphic novels for $50, um, which actually nowadays would be a good deal. Um, 10 Marvel bookshelf titles for 19.95, 10 Justice League comics for 7.95, 10 random DC superhero comics for 4.95, 10 color independence for 3.95, 10 black and white independence for 2.95, 10 valiant comics for 19.95. Bullpen bulletins this one month. Uh, Mike Rockwitz is taking over for Stan on the soapbox. It says from the Mike. Um, Secret Defenders is out, and he's talking about that, and they're talking about how cold it is outside in the bullpen bulletins. There's uh, The Bullseye by Barry Dutter and Rick Parker has something about a book, oh, the book they wrote called Everything I Needed to Know I Learned from Television, and and, and the editor, I guess it's supposed to be DeFalco, is yelling at them about how, uh, you know, they need to stop plugging their stuff softball season weddings you know just kind of like what's going on um these aren't as fun sometimes i don't know <laughs> sometimes like lately i've just been eh, you know but here let's do the bullpen borderline the thing that replaced the cool meter that's going to make me turn this comic around quick fixes emoticons trail mix channel surfing dracula hormone Dracula, Dracula Hormone, Boondoggles, Garbage Separation, Keystone Species, Flywheel Batteries, Nutritional Pyramid, Transition Teams, Inner Workouts, Electric Secretaries, Stressed Ecosystems, Graded Tractor, and Invasive Procedures, Apatosaurus Spines, Exclusionary Anger, Organizationally Challenged, Non-Luddite, 
Gracious Defeat, Mesopotamian Breweries, Hubble's Law, Sensory Deprivation. There you go. There's an East Coast Comics ad. Entertainment this month is about... Ooh, Entertainment this month gets a two-page spread this month. <clears throat> Spider-Man Unlimited premiered. It's a can't-miss hit. Spectacular Spider-Man with the Green Goblin returning, highlighted by the holographics cover, and Spectacular Spider-Man or Spect Spider-Man 200 will be blisteringly hot. K.O. Cable. Cable returns in a new action-packed monthly series, and that's going to be blazing hot. Uh, The X-Men number 300 has a stunning holographics foil cover in Return of Magneto. It's a can't miss and no fan will want to miss the X-Men Series 2 trading cards. With art by Jay Lee, Youngblood Strike Files looks exceptional and don't miss Youngblood Battlezone. There are The Death of Superman Trade, The Greatest Superman Stories, Newstime Life of Superman, Superman Panic in the Sky, and the Superman Poster Gallery, which I think was the the Superman Gallery uh, book, was a must-have for fans and it was HOT! Ray and the Future Force were the most char- powerful characters in the Valiant Universe, and they are HOT! Stormwatch is a HOT! new series from Jim Lee and Image Comics. It also contains a coupon for a limited trading card, and that's highly recommended. He's big, he's strong, he's savagely ugly. Sam Keith's The Max's Image is next big hit, and that is HOT! Marvel annuals are poly-bagged with exclusive limited edition rookie cards. These annuals are a can't-miss. This is right around the time the bubble really will start to burst. Um, by the end of this year, it's it's not completely over, but like you know, things are tumbling tumbling down very very quickly, um, and uh, I'm sure that we'll see. I'm sure that we'll see an advertisement for if we get because because the book ends in '94, so we might see an American Comics ad for like that features Death Mate or, or something to that regard. Kind of those signs of the of of the absolute end. A subscription ad with just uh, headshots of, of several key Marvel heroes like Iron Man, The Thing, Hawkeye, Mockingbird, Cap, Doc Strange, Spidey, and the Hulk, the T2 arcade game ad, and the Mystic Quest brain, tra- brain transplant ad that we saw last month as well. So that'll do it for issue 78, but I'm not done. Um, next up, I'm actually I'm not going to take a break. I'm going to go right into historical context because I have two more comics to cover in some regard. And I'm going to talk about the remainder of 1972. So, on October 1st at about a 1 a.m. local time off the coast of South Vietnam, an explosion on board the USS Newport News killed 19 soldiers and injured 10 others. On October 8th, the long-standing diplomatic stalemate between Henry Kissinger and Lee Ducto finally ended as both sides agreed to major concessions. The United States would allow North Vietnamese troops already in South Vietnam to remain there, while North Vietnam drops its demand for the removal of South Vietnam's President Thieu and the dissolution of his government. And although Kissinger's staff members privately expressed concerns over allowing NVA troops to remain in the South, Kissinger rebuffs them by saying, I want to end this war before the election. On October 22nd, in Saigon, Kissinger visited President Thieu to discuss the peace proposal. The meetings go badly. Um, because an emotional two adamantly opposed the, allowing the North Vietnamese troops to stay indefinitely in South Vietnam. An angry Kissinger reported Tu's reaction to President Nixon, who then threatened Tu with a total cutoff of all American aid. Tu did not back down, and then Kissinger returned to Washington. Also on October 22nd, Operation Linebacker 1 ended. U.S. warplanes threw 40,000 sorties and dropped over 125,000 tons of bombs during the bombing campaign which effectively disrupted North Vietnam's Easter Tide offensive. During this failed offensive, 
The North suffered an estimated 100,000 military casualties and lost half its tanks and artillery. The leader of the offensive, legendary General Vio Nguyen Giap, the victor at Dien Bien Phu, was then quietly ousted in favor of his deputy general, Van Tien Dung. 40,000 South Vietnamese soldiers died, stopping the offensive in the heaviest fighting of the entire war. On October 24th, President Thieu publicly denounces Kissinger's peace proposal. And October 26th, Radio Hanoi reveals the terms of the peace proposal and accuses the United States of attempting to sabotage that settlement. At the White House, now a week before the presidential election, Kissinger holds a press conference briefing and declares, We believe that peace is at hand and we believe that an agreement is in sight. On October 31st, in the last major loss of American life in the Vietnam War, 22 servicemen are killed when the, their Chinook helicopter was shot down by a heat-seeking missile. Nixon wins re-election on November 7th in the biggest landslide to date electorally in American history. I think George McGovern took all of one state or had only got a couple of electoral votes. Nixon just thoroughly wiped his, wiped the floor with him. Um, similar to, I, I don't think, I think it was actually still bigger than Reagan beating Mondale in 84, but it's very, very similar to that where like, McGovern like barely got any electoral votes. It was an it was a complete lopsided lopsided victory. On November fourteenth, President Nixon sends a letter to President Tu secretly pledging to take swift and severe retaliatory action if North Vietnam violates this proposed tre- peace treaty. Then on November 7, 21st, the nineteen seventy convictions of five of the members of the Chicago Seven who were in jail on charging on charges of crossing state lines to incite a riot were reversed by an appellate court, which concluded that Judge Julius J. Hoffman had committed numerous errors. Those cases were never retried. On November 30th, American troop withdrawal from Vietnam is complete, although there are still 16,000 Army advisors and administrators remaining to assist South Vietnam's military forces. On December 13th, in Paris, peace negotiations between Kissinger and Lee Ducteau collapse after Kissinger presents a list of 69 changes demanded by President Thieu. President Nixon now issues an ultimatum to North Vietnam that serious negotiations must resume within 72 hours. Hanoi does not respond, and as a result, Nixon orders Operation Linebacker 2, which is 11 days and nights of maximum force bombing against military targets in Hanoi by B-52 bombers. That operation begins on December December 18th, and it's described more generally as the Christmas bombing, or sometimes as the 11-day war. It begins at 2.51 p.m. as the first of 87 B-52 bombers, piloted by Major Bill Stocker, lifts off from the Anderson Air Force Base in Guam. These are joined by 42 more flying from Thailand, along with 400 fighters and refueling tankers. At 7.40 p.m. Hanoi time, from an altitude of 35,000 feet, the bombers began dropping their payloads and targets in North Vietnam and were met by hundreds of SAM missiles and some MiG-21 fighters. There were 121 bombing runs in the first 24 hours. The so-called bombings are widely denounced by American politicians, the media, and various world leaders, including the Pope. The North Vietnamese film footage of civilian casualties further fuels the the outrage. In, the addition, in addition, a few downed B-52 pilots make public statements in North Vietnam against the bombing. On December 22nd, the Bach Mai Hospital in Hanoi was struck by seven bombs dropped by American airplanes on the fifth day of Operation Linebacker 2. Eighteen people, physicians, medical students, nurses, and patients were killed. 
On Christmas Eve, the U.S. bombing of North Vietnam was temporarily halted for 36 hours at 8 a.m. local time, although Radio Hanoi reported that raids had continued as late as 7.30 p.m. On December 26th, in what has been described as the airstrike that, quote, decided the air war over North Vietnam, Operation Linebacker 2 saw 220 American aircraft strikes targets over a 15-minute period, destroying a missile assembly factory and crippling radar stations and air bases. The North Vietnamese agreed to resume peace talks after three more days of bombing. The bombings in the day after Christmas also destroyed residences and buildings on Hanoi's Cam Tien Street, killing 215 civilians. Then on December 29th and 30th, Operation Linebacker 2 ended after the North Vietnamese agreed to resume negotiations with Kissinger beginning on January 8th. Would have been the most intensive bombing campaign of the entire war, with over 100,000 bombs dropped on Hanoi and Haiphong. A total of 20,370 tons of bombs were dropped on North Vietnam over 11 days. 15 of the 121 B-52s participating were shot down by the North Vietnamese, who fired 1,200 surface-to-air missiles. There were 1,318 civilian deaths from the bombing, and at least that's according to Hanoi. In an oft-quoted passage from The Lessons of Vietnam, Sir Robert Thompson wrote, After 11 days of those B-52 attacks on the Hanoi area, you had won the war. It was over. And South Vietnam would be conquered by the North 40 months later. Also on this day, the American, uh, the U.S. Army received its last draftees. After the close of the Vietnam War, conscription of Americans into service ceased, and all service were composed of volunteers. And that'll do it for historical context. I'll be back in a moment with Marvel Age number 122. Stick around. <laughs> Xenophiles, a fan podcast devoted to the comic series Xenozoic Tales. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent comic series from creator, writer, and artist Mark Schultz. Xenozoic Xenophiles is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And find us at xenozoicxenophiles.com. Marvel Age number 122 came out on January 19, 1993 with a March 1993 cover date. The price was a dollar. The cover features a Joe Quesada and P. Craig Russell drawing of the X-Men done to celebrate the book's 30th anniversary. The back cover is an Avengers pick by Kurt Jarvanen and Brad Vancata, which is talking about how the fact that they also have their 30th anniversary. The X-Men and the Avengers both get their own feature articles in this one, but what is important to us is a two-page piece written by Matt Moore called The Nom. It's actually short enough for me to read in its entirety and offer some commentary, so I'm going to go ahead and do that right now. Tim Tui, assistant editor of The Nom, has been a very busy man. Since his boss, editor Don Daly, handed over the editorial control of the book to him, Tim has been putting in long hours to make it one of Marvel's finest with new creative talent, controversial storylines, special collector covers, and return to reality philosophy. 
The novel began with the basic concept of showing a grunt's eye view of the Vietnam War. In recent years, the book deviated from that path somewhat. Now, six years and numerous editors, writers, and artists later, the NAM has returned to its original concept. I want the book to be informative and entertaining, Tim said. I want to show the readers what really went on. The NAM writer Don Lomax echoed that sentiment. I see it as historical fiction, he said, based on actual events and using fictional characters. I've been trying to get the book as accurate as I can with believable characters and stories to close up to what went down over there. Lomax should have a good idea of what went down over there, a Vietnam vet and war historian. He is not a typical comic book writer. Lomax has spent years researching and writing and talking to veterans about the war. I've corresponded with quite a few vets over the years, he said. There's a little piece of them all in my stories. Don also wrote and penciled the Vietnam Journal and the Desert Storm Journal for Apple Comics. Don's breathing life back into the nom, says artist Wayne Van Sant. He tells a dang good story. Together, Lomax and Tui have come up with a new format for the series, a 16-page lead story followed by a six-page stateside tale. The lead stories are seen through the eyes of journalist Ed Marks. Ed was introduced early in the book's run as a buck private. Always a popular character, he was later discharged from the military. Don decided to bring him back with a college degree and a new job as an Associated Press newswriter. Ed is now the star of the book, experiencing the events along with the reader. The stateside six-pagers also bring back popular characters, but take place back home in the United States. These stories illustrate the lingering effects of the war on the men who were there and its devastating effects on the American society. Just as Don Lomax is not a typical comic book writer, Wayne Van Zandt is not a typical comic book artist. A Vietnam-era veteran himself, he feels that since no war looks like a comic book, the Nam shouldn't look like one. He gives the book the feel it should have, Lomax said. He gets as close to reality as anyone could. That real feel isn't something Van Zandt has had to work at. I never tried to develop a specific style, he said. It just comes from years and years of reading and talking to folks about the war. Van Sant does use the faces of real people as models for the characters. Yeah, he joked, I've killed off my brother-in-law lots of times. Wayne believes in realism but not in violence. I don't think you have to draw blood and guts and use profanity to accurately show what happened, he said. We do realistic stories of the war, yet we're one of the most non-violent books out there. Part of the more realistic format is less realistic timeline. Is a less realistic timeline. The Nam was originally created to be a 96-issue limited series. The concept of that is that each issue would represent one month of real time. The 96 issues would chronicle eight years of American presence in Vietnam, ending with the fall of Saigon in 1965. Although not eliminating the timeline completely, Don is getting away from the one-month-per-issue structure. We lose too many stories that way, he explained. It's almost impossible to sum everything up that happened in one issue. In the original timeline, Tet was glossed over in one issue. Now with issues number 79 through 81, we're going back and telling it right. Lomax is referring to the Tet Offensive, a massive assault of thousands of North Vietnamese troops on more than 100 South Vietnam cities, generally considered the turning point of the war. After the assault and the loss of countless lives, American troops found themselves fighting a demoralizing media-inspired uphill war that ended with their eventual withdrawal. In issues 79 through 81, entitled The Beginning of the End, reporter Ed Marks interviews a platoon sergeant who was on the front line and gives Ed a graphic first-hand description of what happened. For this tensely pivotal story, Tim has planned a special triptych cover as penciled in ink by, and colored by Michael Golden, the original penciler on the NAM. His triptych will form a panorama depicting the various locales involved in the offensive, and the two illustrations are two of the, of the, in this issue are two of the covers, by the way. 
Tim's agenda for the upcoming stories covers the next two years and includes a story told from the perspective of a North Vietnamese soldier and the war's effect on his family and country. The story is being drawn by an artist who Tim refers to as the South American Michael Golden, whose art will blow people's socks off. By the way, um, I believe that is the final, that's going to end up being the final issue. I think that's 84. Also planned is a piece recounting the Hue Massacre, an offensive that led to the slaughter of more than 3,000 civilians by North Vietnamese forces. Tim has another three-parter in the works, which breaks the tradition that he helped create, a wholly fictional, action-oriented, apocalypse now type of story. Tim promises completely off-the-wall explosions left to right and over-the-top issues. These will also feature a Michael Golden cover triptych. Tim's agenda for upcoming stories covers the next two years and includes a story told from the perspective of... Yeah, so whoever laid this out repeated the same paragraph twice, so let's skip down. (laughs) Way to go, editorial. Um, The fictional action continues with another three-part storyline featuring the return of the most popular character ever to appear in the series, The Punisher. Tim refers to it as the definitive Frank Castle Vietnam story because it addresses many of the unanswered questions from Frank Castle's past, such as how he was able to serve more than three tours of duty, why he changed his name from Castiglione, what the events were that led to his trip home to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor. This tale of disillusionment plants in the mind of the young idealistic war hero the psychological seeds that will blossom with his transformation into the ruthless vigilante. Those were never published, by the way, at least as issues of the NOM. They were published in a trade called The Punisher Invades the NOM Final Invasion, which came out after the book was canceled. I have that, and I will be covering it as part of my regular coverage. So finally, Vietnam scarred all of us, Lomax concluded. Not just the people who were there. It changed the government. It changed the world. If you want to find out what really happened 25 years ago, reading this will explain it and help put into perspective attitudes people have now. War is hell. The Nam is a scrapbook reliving memories of hell. Um, they're, they're on the money about Wayne Van Sant's art. I, I, I've, I just loved it the entire way through, especially through this latter part of the book. Um, the idea that they didn't tell the Tet right the first time around, I, I take a little issue with that because I, I really enjoyed what Doug Murray did in his first in his run. I really liked the month to month real time thing. But I do understand that you might want to go back to that and tell from somebody else's perspective. And using Ed Marks to get there is a really, really good idea. Um, because he's just basically having people tell their war stories. And I think but with Lomax taking that approach, instead of coming up with like totally new characters and things like that, um, it's really, really smart. That is Marvel Age number 122, the uh, the, the two-page nom story. Uh, you will find out that uh, next issue is 78. The series concludes with 84. This, I guess, was just kind of a last push to really get things um, going. I know the book sales were flagging. Tim Tui, I believe, was a brand-new assistant editor. Um, not saying that he was doing a bad job. I thought he, I think he's doing a very good job. I think you can see the enthusiasm come through the letters pages. But I think it's one of those cases where, like, maybe he was just kind of the new kid in the block, and they were like, you know, here you go. Why don't you take this on? It's it's a nice test for you, and it's a low low risk if it doesn't ultimately work out. And it worked out to a certain extent. I would have loved to see. I just would have loved to see more issues. I would have loved to see this go all the way to say a hundred. And, uh, and then see what they would have done with like a 100th issue or something. But anyway, I'm going to take another break. And when I get back, I'm going to talk about the Punisher War Journal number 52. So stick around. 
Beginning in 2018, the Who's Who podcast enters the 1990s with our coverage of the Loose Leaf Editions. Featuring Superman by Jerry Ordway. The Joker by Brian Bolland. Wonder Woman by George Perez. Sandman by Mike Dringenberg. Batman by Norm Brayfogle. The JLI by Adam Hughes. Eclipso by Bart Sears. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. Dark Stars by Travis Charest. Lobo by Simon Bisley. Kent Shakespeare by Chris Sprouse? Who is that? Doomsday by Tom Grummet. Wait, are we covering these by issue or in alphabetical order? The Justice Society of America by Mike Parabek. The Forever People again? You are f***ing kidding me. Doom Patrol by Richard Case. <sighs> I'm so confused. And many more. The Who's Who podcast, going boldly into the 90s. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I guess. And I'm back. Punisher War Journal number 52 came out on the same date as our issue, January 26, 1993. It had a March 1993 cover date, and it also had a cover price of $1.75. The color by Gary Quapitz shows the Punisher in the woods heading, with, holding a couple of guns and a few dead guys below him. The cover copy says, Nom Flashback. Frank is in shadow, and well, it's actually a pretty effective cover, because let's face it, Punisher covers can be rather generic at times, and this one actually works. But let's get to the comic itself. Stories by Chuck Dixon, art by Gary Quapitz. I'm probably mispronouncing it. It's K-W-A-P-I-Z-I-S-Z, so Quapis. Letters by Jim Novak. Colors by Glynis Oliver. And the editor is Don Daly. Tom DeFalco is your editor-in-chief. The story is all about how Frank is infiltrating a white supremacist army and teaming up with ICE from the NAM. Frank narrates the issue. Um, and it's basically the members of the um, of this group... Rob a bank in California saying they're here to save America. Uh, they're called the Sword of Liberty. And they're, they're a white supremacist group very much like what you would have seen in like Ruby Ridge or something back in the very, very early 90s. Almost cult-like in a sense as well. Frank is basically um, trying to infiltrate them. They have a place there. Their compound's called Valhalla. And their leader is called Armstrong. Um... And he's, he's just this, this guy with a huge eagle tattoo. They have a flag, which is the Stars and Stripes, except for the stars. There's two swords in the blue field. Armstrong executes one of the people who he thinks did him wrong. And he, this guy's kind of unhinged. He's got this girlfriend named Dina, who's supposed to be kind of like, you know, is trying his best to kind of, you know, you know, ease things out. And then we cut to Dina's father. His name is Mr. Hammond. He's a, he's this rich guy, and basically he's hiring somebody to get her back. It's Ice. Punisher and Ice both track through the woods. They come across each other. They fight. Then they realize who the, that they're going the same way. And uh, I'm going to give you a, a little bit of his narration where they're, they're starting to infiltrate the book. It's about halfway through the issue, and the Punisher says, Ice Phillips cut its teeth with Phoenix Force. He was two years in Southeast Asia running from black, running black bag missions for special ops. He burnt out, but he couldn't go home. Ice did three more tours as a hunter-sniper on orders direct from MACV. He was one of the best. We're getting closer. It's quiet time. I brought a cost along a Barnett crossbow for, in for the Closeton work. Ice has a small Bohr Ruger match pistol with a homemade suppressor. 
The first team we find are camouflaged textbook perfect, but I just wrote that textbook and I memorized it. And it's like, you know, a, an in shadow, an arrow going through the guy's throat. Um, you know, so they take out some guys, they find Valhalla, but Ice basically turns on Frank and tasers him because Frank's basically going to blow everybody to Kingdom Come and take everybody out. But what Ice tells him says that a human life is worth more to me than you and little Dina's white life is worth a bundle. A half a million will buy a lot of peace, bro. And um, Frank says, I don't remember blacking it out and I come to and feel rotten. And uh, when he opens his eyes, things get worse. And it's basically he has been is surrounded by the white supremacists who say, Rover to base looks like the one we caught had a partner. So basically, Ice and Frank infiltrated. Ice turns on Frank to um, more or less, you know, gets what he wants because he's being paid for it. Uh, Ice has been captured by inf- when he's infiltrating the group, and then Frank gets captured as well. And overall, it's what I would expect from a Punisher story from around this time. Um, in fact, it actually reminds me of a similar story from 1987, which was an issue number three of the ongoing Punisher series. Uh, you can actually hear me talk about that issue back in episode 23 of the Pop Culture Affidavit miniseries Origin Story from about uh, 2017. Uh, that issue is a Mike Barron, Klaus Janssen story. It's a solid one-off this one does of course repeat this idea but still remains relevant for its time because a few months prior to this being published the government standoff against that white supremacist group at ruby ridge near naples idaho had taken place in the first half of 1993 which see the tragedy at the branch davidian compound in waco texas uh ruby ridge by the way was the subject of a very very good pbs documentary uh an episode of the American Experience, which is a wonderful PBS documentary show, and it's also featured in the same series in American Experience's episode on the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, and that is outstanding. I would really highly recommend um, the Oklahoma City bombing episode about of American Experience. It uh, it's it's really really well done. It connects it all the way back to Ruby Ridge and Waco. Anyway, that historical context aside, I enjoy the way that Frank and Ice are on a course to intersect with one another for different purposes and how ice is a little more rational than Frank. Of course, he doesn't know the history of our vigilante hero since he came back from Vietnam in his personal war, but the idea that he would be more merciful while also looking out for his self-interest is right in line with his character as shown in at least some of the issues that Chuck Dixon wrote. I mean, this feels very much like an action yarn of its era, and I mean that in the best way possible. Dixon's one of the best action writers in comics, especially during this time, so he pulls out all the stops and all the necessary tropes in order to give us what would have made for a great episode of a syndicated Punisher series from the early 1990s. It even has a classic cliffhanger, Ice seems to betray Frank, leading him to be captured by the militiamen. And I would say the militiamen are a little over the top in places, though. I mean, the minions are what you might typically think of, expect from these type of villains, but the leader's a little too over the top crazy. I don't know if Dixon is going for a David Koresh type of character, although I don't know how much was known about Koresh and the Branch Davidians in the mainstream media by the latter part of 1992, because even though uh, they were in conflict with the ATF, the siege wouldn't start until about the round, around the end of February. Armstrong's a bit of a cartoon. Uh, the Patty Hearst angle of Dina is a little set up for this reunion of Ice and Frank goes. I'll allow it. And you know, in a time when we are seeing people from the original days of the title reunite with one another, it's pretty cool to see at least one of the characters from the title's second era. 
ICE is a private investigator or someone you hire to retrieve a missing or troubled person is a great angle and also suits his character. The meeting between the two of them is incredibly macho. I'm only looking forward to see, actually looking forward to see how this resolves itself. The art's all right. My experience with The Punisher has been very limited over the years, having read a few issues in the early 90s, but what I most remember, aside from the character's initial appearances in The Amazing Spider-Man, as well as his non-issues in the first and his first few issues of the, the Mike Barron, Klaus Jansen era, you know, and then some, you know, stuff like Frank Miller. It's, you know, Gary Quapitz is a... Uh, is solid. You know, he's not as good as some of those other artists. But he gets iced down. He doesn't oversell Frank in the way that I'm sure a number of other artists from the 90s might do. Dixon seems to be scripting to his artist's strengths here, which is why I think the story works on the level that it does, although I admit I'm curious as to what a Chuck Dixon Graham Nolan Punisher would have looked like, mainly because I absolutely love their run on Detective Comics. But we'll see how this all plays out two episodes from now. As next episode, I'm going to take a break from my usual coverage to talk about Ron Kovic's memoir, Born on the Fourth of July, as well as the Oliver Stone film of the same name and the 1979 Hal Ashby-directed feature, Coming Home. Until then, you can check me out on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Leave me a rating in iTunes. Um, I know we've got about, we're coming up on the last 12 episodes or so of the of the series. 11 and a wake up. So um, thank you if you've been here from the beginning. I really appreciate it if you're just coming in. Um, I hope you get a chance to go back and listen to old episodes over at the TTF website. But as always, thank you again for listening and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom. Hey mama, I heard Papa call himself a jack of all trades. Tell me, is that what's it Papa doing early grave? Folks say Papa would beg, borrow, steal to pay his bills. Hey mama, folks say Papa never was much on thinking. Spent most of his time chasing women and drinking. Mama looked up with a tear and I said, son.